A reading from Philippians 2, 1 through 5. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value one another above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Oh, come on, ring it out. Say, everyone say, oh, Christ be magnified. Let his praise arise. Christ be magnified in me. Oh, oh, Christ be magnified from the altar of my life. Christ be magnified in me. Just take a moment while you're standing there to meditate for a moment on what it means to magnify Christ. What does that look like? You know, magnification is an important thing in our world today, right? Every child knows that, you know, no two snowflakes are alike, but we don't notice that until we magnify them. Then you see the differences, you see the intricacies. In the same way, until we magnify Christ, he can get lost in our world of busyness. When we magnify him, we see his beauty, his glory, his sacrifice. And in the same way, would you pray with me now? Let's bow our heads. What would it mean if we learn, as this passage outlines, to magnify one another, to see the intricacies, the beauty that God made souls in each one of us, cross every line that divides us? What if we learn to magnify one another and see what God sees when he looks at us? Pray that silently for a moment, that God would give you a spirit of magnification for him, for his, for his son, and for one another. Father, we thank you this morning that uh, you see us under a magnification. You see all the flaws and you see the beauty that you created in each one of us. And even while we were yet sinners, you sent your son and he died for us. While we were your enemies, he sacrificed himself for us. Wow. Can we do that for each other, Lord? Can we live the way your son lived on our behalf? Father, embed this text in our heart this morning, your scripture, the living word. Give it to us in a way that we'll walk out of here today, we'll, we'll close down online today, and we will be a more grown-up people because of your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. All the Lord's people said... Amen. And you may be seated in his presence. Thanks, worship team. The worship team, as usual, has made all my points for me. I don't really need to preach, Paula, but I'm going to anyway. Corey, I was early to the TV show Survivor. I heard about it before it ever became a reality. In late 1999, I heard about it on a radio show, and I thought, that's the best idea I have ever heard for a reality show. That's going to be awesome. And ever since that moment, Bob, I have wanted to be a contestant on Survivor. 
uh, except for those times when they have to eat stuff. I'm not very good at eating stuff. I don't like, as you, as you all know, if you know me. But I was early, and I, I watched it since it began in 2000. My son and I, uh, he was living at home back then, and uh, we watched the early seasons together. We still call and compare notes. We watched every season. Uh, and as a matter of fact, if we ever get a chance to apply for one of the or, um, seasons they call loved ones, where uh, related people come on together, Cole and I will apply together. Don't su be surprised if we are on the show one day. And it's a show, church, that I don't really want to like, but I do. Uh, and if you're not familiar, it's a reality competition, competition that takes plus or minus 20 folks to a remote location with limited food and limited shelter and has them compete with one another for the title of sole survivor and $1 million. And the premise of the game is that you have to outwit and outplay and outlast everyone else, outlast one another. And with such big money at stake, you see firsthand what people are willing to do to one another. They befriend and then they betray. They form alliances to pick off weaker or stronger players so that they can stay on the island. And then they blindside the alliances that they've had before. Blindside's a big word. It comes up every week on the show. Perhaps the show is so popular because it exaggerates the values of a society, our world, that tells us that getting ahead depends on looking out for yourself first. But Survivor and this kind of thinking that all of us share at some level is the complete opposite of everything we've preached in this One Another series for the last seven weeks. And here we are in week seven, we're in the finale, finale and the text that Meg just read uh, from Philippians chapter two underlines the moral imperative of the church, that in contrast to a world that would have us blindside and sideline and diminish and, and, and detest the needs of one another, the scripture tells us, tells the church to do the opposite of those things. Here in Philippians 2, Paul tells us instead, and I sum it up with this word, this word doesn't actually appear in this text, but there's so many one another's here, we had to find a word, and, and Paul sums it up, and he's telling us today to magnify one another, and that's our title this morning, magnify one another. And now listen, 10 years before Paul wrote these sentences to the church at Philippi, 10 years before, we see Paul actually walking the talk in Philippi before the church at Philippi has even begun. It's in Acts 16, you don't need to turn there, I'll give you a small summary, You're, many of you will recognize this, but in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are in a Philippian jail for the crime of casting out a demon from a young girl. And who, someone was using the young girl to make money, and they were mad because they cast out the demon that took away their financial source. So Paul and Silas are now in this Philippian jail, and at midnight, there is a violent earthquake that shook the foundations of the prison, loosened everyone's chains, and at this point, you would think, right? It's every man, everyone, everybody for themselves. Run for freedom, our chains are off, God has intervened. We even sing it in songs, and can it be, as a chorus in, in the Michael W. Smith song too. My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth. But that's not exactly how it happened. Because for Paul, Paul recognized something else in the midst of the chains being loosened. He recognized that his escape could cost the jailer his life. So he recognized this, and he and Silas, because they recognized this, stayed in the prison. 
that had crumbled down around them. And the jailer comes and he's looking and he says, we're still here. So he and Silas stayed because they did not consider their freedom as more important than the jailer's life. Now we don't sing this, you know, I stayed in jail so he could prevail. Wait, it's not part of the chorus of Ain't Can It Be. But it could be a verse. And I always get queasy when followers of Christ today cry freedom for themselves at the cost of others' interests. And we see it all over social media. You do you, I'll do me. Listen, stop saying that. That's not a thing in the world of the follower of Christ. It's about the other. And I get why we bought into it. I, I, get, uh, I get the boundaries we're trying to set. I get it. But scripture tells us something else. The jailer in this Philippian jail is so compelled by the sacrifice of Paul and Silas, he asks the most important question of his life. The most important question any of us can ask. What is it, Corey? What must I do to be saved? And Paul's act of selflessness while magnifying the jailer, which is what he did, was one of the key events that led to the planting of the church at Philippi as both the jailer and his family believed in Christ, followed Christ. So we fast forward 10 years to our text this morning. The events with the Philippian jailer are 10 years in the past. Paul is writing these words to the church at Philippi. Now he's in another prison. He's in a prison at Rome. Paul hangs out in prisons. And once again, we see that Paul doesn't seem to mind prison very much. As he sees that this church at Philippi is thriving 10 years later, he's filled with joy. He says so 10 times in this letter. He's in jail. He's actually on the eve of his upcoming execution in the early 60s AD. But he's also writing because of a threat that could undermine this church at Philippi. And it's the scourge of healthy churches throughout history, isn't it? It's the, it's the threat of disunity that always lurks in the shadows, ready to weaken and to erode the church's effectiveness. So Grace City, in Philippians 2, we see perhaps the most eloquent and profound call to unity in all of Scripture, perhaps in all of literature. It is profound. I, I read this text when I was a brand new Christian at 14 years old, and it has stayed with me. It's even part of our marriage vows. And it's really, really hard. It, it, it's a hard text because it requires a change of direction, doesn't it? It requires something that we cannot find on our own. We're not good at this, left alone as human beings. But here's the good news this morning, church. We are not on our own. Three things in this text will help us magnify one another for the sake of unity. And think of this this morning with me. Think of it directionally. We're going to go up, we're going to go across, and we're going to go down. So first there is the reality of an upward Miracle, an upward miracle. We sang about this in our first song this morning. It's in verse 1. Paul says that if you stand any chance to, to stand together in one spirit, then you need to remember first your miraculous union with Jesus Christ. He begins with rhetorical questions, and it's a stunning way to go after it. If you haven't read this in a while, go back and read this first, first verse of chapter 2. Listen to it. Therefore, if, it's, so rhetor, it's, it's almost sarcastic. If you have any encouragement from you being united with Christ, raise your hand if you have that, seriously. If you have any comfort ever from his love, raise your hand. If you have any common sharing, any koinonia in the spirit, raise your hand. 
if you have any sense of tenderness and compassion for one another, raise your hand. So he's, he's, he's asking these questions, and he knows the hands are going up. I've experienced this for 10 years in this church, Philippi, 10 years here at Grace City, a little longer. So how about you? Any encouragement, any comfort, any koinonia, any tenderness and compassion? Of course you do. The hands went up. And the context here, Grace City, is that this church has lived in the middle of such encouragement for 10 years, just like you. All because, all because they belong to Christ. They belong to Jesus, just like you, just like me. This is our upward miracle. Never, ever diminish this. It's only because they are in Christ that they can possibly, possibly enjoy the benefits of living in unity. They must not forget, and we must not forget, that our unity with one another has its foundation in our union with Christ. Unity with each other comes from our union with Christ. It's based there, it follows there, and it goes there. What is clear to Paul, and must remain clear to all of us, is that there cannot be true, true unity in the church unless its people consistently pursue Jesus Christ in every way. Not just in words, but by pursuing him and loving him in humble obedience to his word, pursuing him in prayer, pursuing him in our personal lives. And now Paul is going to go, goes on to tell us that if you have any experience, and all of us raised our hands, if you have this experience with the upward miracle of being united with Jesus Christ who is in heaven, then you need to think alike on earth. And this is where it gets, what? But this is what he says. I'm not making it up. And so that's our second point. We, first, we have the upward miracle. Now, he calls us to be cross-minded. Cross-minded. Somebody say cross-minded. It's a play on words. Are you with me? You know I love words. So it's a play on words. It does make, I'm, this point is that we have to be minded toward the cross of Jesus Christ, cross with a capital C. And at the same time, we have to, to look across the lines that would divide us and look across and be cross-minded with those with whom we disagree with those whom think differently than us. And here's how Paul goes after it. Take a look in verse 2. If you have any of these experiences, make my joy complete. Watch. By being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. This sentence is among my favorite texts of all time, Corey. And, it, and not because it's natural to us as human beings. It's not. It, precisely because it requires supernatural intervention for us to get there. It does. This is, this is God's work. Like, this is a text, this one, verses 1 through 5, that anyone who's been to Nicaragua, raise your hands if you've been with us to Nicaragua, you have had to memorize these five verses, right? And, and we've recited them together, and we go to Nicaragua uh, in that developing country to serve, and frankly, these verses are sort of easy there compared to here. They're easy because we're, we're so focused we're so directionally on target with each other. We're just doing one thing. What can I do to serve? And it's not hard to not only serve the environment in Nicaragua, it's not hard to serve one another. We're all about each other in those two weeks that we're down there. It's, it, it's hard work, but it's easy on the spirit. And we're so bad at it back here. It's so hard back here because we're not in the same plane. We're not thinking alike. Three times here in this verse, Paul tells us to be of the same mind, like-minded, one-minded. And he's clearly trying to find different ways to tell followers of Christ to think the same. Somebody say, think the same. This is not, we're not we're, we don't really get this in our world. All of the sayings here in our text 
mind, love, same spirit. Even this word same spirit, that, that's a tran- translators are falling all over themselves in this, in this particular verse, verse 2, to try to figure out way, different ways to say the same thing that Paul is saying. And he's, even this word same spirit is a different word. It's only used here. And it means a full accord. It's the word that we get symphony from. Full accord. All of this, verse 2, points to being of one mind. Will you think alike? So, so how, what in the world does Paul mean? We have to ask, right? And it's at least this. Back in chapter 1, just a few sentences before in verse 27, he says this. And take a look at it on your screen. He says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that I know you are standing firm. So here at least, at first at least, he is teaching that the priority task of the church is to agree on the truth of the gospel. The good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ. He's telling us to stand on the gospel, be cross-minded, both his cross and across to one another, across all opinions, So we have to ask, how does it work in real life? How does it work on social media? We know that there's no way to get any group of people in the same room at the same time where we will all think the same. That wouldn't be true here. Even as you look around this room, apart from the gospel, most of us think differently on both important things and secondary things, peripheral things. Grace City, Paul is not telling us to have the same opinions about all things. I mean, after all, Paul himself, we see it in the first part of Acts. Paul and Peter, have you ever seen those two fight in the book of Acts? They go after each other. The leaders of the church. And they're arguing about one of the same issues that's true here in in the church at Philippi, by the way. Paul and Peter, and Paul usually wins, by the way. I don't know what's up with that, but he usually wins. Paul is telling us to be like-minded first on the indispensable things of the gospel. So there ought to be room then, and we ought to make room for the significant earthly things that we debate. For example, political parties and social policies. And Paul is saying, can we debate these and still be like-minded? Because of our union in Christ. Because of the upward miracle of Christ. And I'm saying, yes, we can, because the apostle says we can. I'm not making it up. It's right here in the text. But it's an understatement, Kathy, to say it's difficult, right? This is the work you do all the time. It's difficult work. I've seen churches, Corey's, all of, maybe, I've seen churches divide over very insignificant things. What kind of chairs to put in the, in the, in the church, in the whatever? What do we call it? Sanctuary. It's been so long since I've been in a sanctuary. I, we have airplanes in our sanctuary. Some people are just against that, you know? But I, I'm really for that. It's very biblical to have an airplane in your... So when this, when this occurs, it's no wonder we divide then. If we can divide over the insignificant, peripheral, secondary things, we divide over the important things too, right? We do. The significant things. We, we divide over race and gender and money and power. These are, the, these are the things in our world today that threaten the one-anothering of the church. And I put that in quotes for, for real. The one anothering of the church is always threatened by, the, by those big things. And Paul says in the midst of the big things that he knows a whole lot about, he says in the midst of that, wait, hold on. And let's take a look as he takes on an actual divisive argument in chapter 4. Take a look on your screen. In chapter 4, if you take a look in Philippians, chapter 4, verses 1 to 4, he says this. You don't have to look if, if you don't have it in front of you, but he says this. Therefore, and that's a key word here. You always ask what the therefore is there for. 
Keep that in mind when you do Bible study. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm in the Lord this way. Verse 2, I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. It's the same call, but some significant difference has divided these two women in the church. And Paul doesn't name the thing, but because he said, therefore, it's not hard to go back and figure out what are the issues that are going on in this church. The therefore shows that it's based on something that has come before. And one of the issues in the Philippian church is the Judaizers, which is the argument that if you're going to follow Christ, first you have to to, uh, abide and and follow all the rules of what it is to be Jewish. You know, physically, spiritually, everything else. And there's an argument in the church that splits over this huge theological issue. This is what split Paul and Peter at the beginning, by the way, what they fought about. And Paul has a side in this quarrel, and he states it clearly. But here, Paul takes Yodia and Syntyche and all of us, all of Baltimore, the entire country, all of the world, he takes us upward to a different place. It looks to me like, I mean, we could metaphorically say Yodia is a Republican and Syntyche is a Democrat and Clement and the others in this paragraph are probably egging them on, but nobody can find common ground. It's an issue we're very familiar with and they're arguing on their own version of social media. They have to hammer it out. It takes a good time. But he addresses himself directly to these two women and make note of this in the paragraph. He he does it in such terms that neither one of them could think that the apostle had given either one of them priority. Neither one was getting preferred treatment. It's both a commendation and a critique. He says this to them as you read on. Both your names, Yodia and Syntyche, will you relax? Both your names are written in the book of life. You have a seat at the table of God in heaven. You have labored alongside of me in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, but you've lost your minds for one another. You've done all this for the truth of the gospel, but you've lost your minds. Find your cross-mindedness. Find the cross and then find one another across. Be cross-minded. And he says, you can do this. By the way, Paul and Peter figured it out. They had these huge arguments. And then they took the church together. It's the gospel, Grace City, that binds us in the end. It's the only common denominator that we need in order to live out our calling. And at the end of the day, when we don't agree on anything but being united in Christ, it is the mission and the message and the meaning of the gospel of Jesus Christ that binds us together. So church, be cross minded. Just look around the room for a minute. Everybody just spin your heads around and just say, Lord, help me be cross-minded. Help me be. So we're united with Christ, the upward. We're like-minded with the gospel. And lastly, Paul tells us to set our sights on downward mobility. Downward mobility. And everybody goes, oh, not that, Bob. Please, not that. It's verses three and four. It's not me. It's right here. Talk about the scripture being at odds with contemporary culture, Corey. These verses lie in perfect counterpoint to the message of the world. Take a look at verses three and four with me. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. I I won't ask you to raise your hands if you've ever done that, because that's unfair. But rather in humility, value others above yourselves. Value one another above yourselves. Wow, that's a one another for the century, isn't it? Value... Another translator says it this way, consider one another as more important than yourself. 
Look around the room again. Can you do this? Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. This is downward mobility, isn't it? Listen, our society messages us with countless strategies to, to make it to the top, enter the limelight, limelight, break records, be the goat. That's what draws attention. That's what gets us to the front page. That, that's what offers us money and fame and careers that work. But the voice of selfish ambition, individually and corporately, is completely absent in Scripture. This is a complete Difference, opposite, counterpoint. The way of Jesus, church, is always radically different than the message of the world. It's not the way of upward mobility in which we have so much invested. It is the way of downward mobility that ends on a cross. It's going to the bottom, choosing the last place in line, leaning from underneath while we magnify others. Try that on, leading from underneath while we magnify others. Why is the way of Jesus, this way of Jesus, worth choosing? Because it's the way he took. It's the way he did it. It's the way to the kingdom. It's the way that brings everlasting life. It's the way to thrive on this planet. We're not very good at it on our own. We think we are. We're so bad. Listen, when we disagree on something that's sufficiently important in our mind, then we tend to seek justification for breaking off relationships, don't we? We block people. We treat our issues as if there were no alternatives left to us. And Paul says, that's just not true. We say there's no way to reconcile our opinions. And Paul says, that's just not true. He says, there are resources in Christ which make it possible. Paul says, you have forgotten something when you think that finding fault is an excuse to break with one another. You've forgotten what you share in Christ. You've forgotten the power of Christ within you to overlook injuries and forgive insults and to be patient with weakness and to see the value in one another. You've forgotten how to divest of yourself and invest in one another. You've forgotten how to increase the other while you decrease in their presence. This is what Jesus did. So, so, so he asks, does the encouragement of Christ's presence mean anything to you anymore? Is there any incentive in you who were loved by God while you were yet a sinner, while you were his enemy, is there any incentive that moves you to love the unlovable like he loved you? Because you were unlovable. I was unlovable, and yet he loved me. Can you do the same across lines? Is there any participation in the spirit of God to recognize that you and others have something called the gospel in common? And you know that God is at work in them as well as in you. Look across the room, they're at work in them as well as you. Is there any affection and sympathy for problems that the one who is against you may be experiencing? Do you know what I mean? Let me ask that again. Is there any sympathy for the one who's against you? Like, and Corey's used this illustration a few times in the past decade, you know, like 100. But, but it's when, you, you know, it, it feels odd, right, when the flight attendant says, remind us, remind you to put your mask on first so that you can help others. It feels a little odd, but the theory is that if you can't breathe, it's predictable, you're going to have a hard time helping others. But in our daily lives, let me, let me change this a little bit. It's worth remembering that the next time someone doesn't act or speak or vote in a way that you expect, it might be that they're having a little trouble getting their own mask on. Trouble that you might not even be aware of because you're so against them. They might be having a little trouble. Have you looked at it from their point of view? Have you put yourself in their place? Paul says, 
act with that kind of mind, that kind of mind that looks with that kind of empathy, not with the harsh and caustic negative attitude that can tear us apart. Paul says, listen, if we indeed we are united with Christ, if indeed we are like-minded with the gospel of Jesus Christ, then, they, then we will, with the same humility that Jesus showed at the cross, we will magnify one another more than ourselves. We just will. We will count one another more important than ourselves. It will look like a people, the church will look like a people who are first and foremost for one another. And people will notice that. That changes the world. And we won't be like those who, who look to their own interests first. And listen, don't make this mistake. This is not about serving one another. That was the second in this series. That's a thing. It's big. There's a whole message on that. Go back. This has nothing to do this passage has nothing to do with serving one another. This is about our posture toward one another. Are you with me? When it comes to our opinions and our self-regard, it's about our tendency to think ourselves superior to others and how we view things. That's what Paul's talking about. You see, because you can serve others even as you keep your superior position. That's possible. That's done in history. History is full of such examples. We call it colonialism and paternalism and authoritarianism and more things, all done in the name of helping when, in fact, it becomes toxic to those you're trying to help because it's this superior, inferior thing. This is not about serving. Individually, too, Grace City, when we hold ourselves and our way of thinking as superior to another's, we lose the capacity to be like-minded, to be cross-minded because we're always above. And Jesus, Paul is saying, come in below like Jesus did. Henry Nouwen said it this way, I'm just going to quote him, as long as we continue to live as if we are what we do, what we have, and what other people think about us, we will remain filled with judgments, opinions, evaluations, and condemnations. We will remain, listen to this, we will remain addicted to putting people and things in their right place. Paul says our posture must be one of humility. How? Like Jesus, he says. And I know the world sees humility more as a liability than an asset, but it's the way of Jesus. You can't argue with it. So listen, let's put all of this at the foot of the cross as, as we invite the worship team back to the front. For the follower of Christ, if life, church, and ministry begin to feel like a game of survivor that's defined by tribal alliances and competition, and selfish ambition, and one-upsmanship, then we have missed the teaching of Scripture. We have missed the 100 one-another messages of the New Testament. There's a 100 of them. Paul tells us in verse 5, take a look at it. This is where we go to end, because this is what Christ did for us. He says this, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Just take that on for a minute. Because two things there. One, it feels so out of reach. But the apostle is saying it's possible to have the same mind as Christ Jesus. Listen, we all know that Jesus died on the cross so we might be saved. But let me, let me point out something else to you about his mindset. In so many ways, in another way, Jesus died long before the cross in the exact ways Paul pushes all of us toward this morning. He died to self from the very beginning. We see it in the very first chapter of the earliest gospel, the gospel of Mark, when he, when he submits himself to the baptism of John. 
His, his humility showed from the beginning. He died to self from the beginning. You see it in verses 6 to 8 here in our chapter in Philippians. Paul quotes, actually, he's quoting an early church hymn. I wish we still had the music for it. But look at it. Verses 6 to 8. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Wow. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Listen, learning to magnify one another has a cost for all of us. It will feel like a part of us is dying when we do it. It will. And I want us to, to be willing to take that feeling on because it's beautiful. It's Jesus-like. And the opposite of what it feels like is actually what's happening. Because it's, when that's, it's only then that we taste that dimension of heaven that says, be unified in my name. The joy of being of one mind and one spirit by which we're able to see one another as more important than ourselves. And bear witness to what a difference that makes for peace here on earth when we submit to one another. Great City, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, then magnify one another. Let God handle your insecurity and your terror of looking weak, your apprehension of being vulnerable, your attachment to your own opinions, my attachment to my opinions, and let's lay them all at the foot of the cross. Look how the story ends in verses 9 to 11 in chapter 2, and I'll just read this and then I'm, I'm finished. Here's how it ends. Jesus did not account equality to be uh, something used to his advantage. He became obedient to death. Therefore, verse 9, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledged that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Somebody say amen. Amen. Let's stand up and let's sing and worship, and we'll be back with the offering and the benediction and the call to action.